Listener supported. WNYC Studios. If you're a medical student in your first year, you're pretty much guaranteed to end up in anatomy lab, where your first patient is actually a dead person. Cutting into cadavers is a way to learn hands-on how bodies work. Medical students have done it for years, but it's also really disorienting. Dr. Sarah Schlesinger is a professor now, but she still remembers that first day of anatomy class. She had this nagging feeling, like, I don't really know what I'm doing. We're, we're assigned to look for the great vessels, the, the vessels that come from the heart and carry the blood to the rest of the body. And we've cut into the left side of the chest cavity, and we're not finding anything. So our anatomy instructor comes over, a guy who's been in this lab forever. They tell him they're not finding these really large blood vessels. And he says, well, sort of move out of the way. And he, you know, sh- uh, shoes us out of the way. And he starts to dissect himself with greater sort of alacrity and, and assurance than we had, but still, still not finding anything. And, you know, after about five minutes of this, which is a pretty long time, he looks at us and says, this is a mystery. After a while, they realize this cadaver has everything backwards. It's an amazingly rare anomaly called situs inversus. And it makes Sarah Schlesinger kind of frustrated. That was sort of the thing that, that I felt because in the beginning, when I learned this, I was so upset and I was so appalled because how was I going to learn anatomy? How was I going to learn where everything was? Because it was in reverse. But 30 years later, she has a different take on what went on in that class. Maybe the backwards body was just right. As a doctor, you have to be open to surprises and respond to what's really in front of you. I'm Mary Harris, and today on Only Human, what working on the dead teaches future doctors about life. And those who donate their bodies to science, what's in it for them? Our reporter Fred Mogul is here with me. You went in search of these questions. What what got you interested in this? You know, Mary, I always just really wanted to know where the subcostal zygus runs into the superior vena cava. I kind of don't believe you. No, not really. <laughs> but I, I write about healthcare, and I spend a lot of time talking to patients and doctors about what each side expects from and gets out of each other. And I thought it'd be interesting to look at these expectations before a doctor becomes a doctor and after a patient is done being a patient. And I found the two sides were pretty far apart. Yeah, because one side is dead. Well, yes, true. But (laughs) that doesn't mean it's the end of their story. What if they have things to share, but no one's listening? Okay. Uh, So where are we starting our story? In the basement of the NYU Langone Medical Center. Yeah. Anatomy Lab is somewhere on this floor, but we don't know. It's a maze down here. There's construction everywhere. And getting lost and unlost seems like an appropriate way to begin the first day of anatomy. Um, which vestibule? The group I'm following, I'll call them Table 4, finds where they're going. They ditch their bags and coats in one room and make their way into one of the brightly lit labs. It has a dozen tables in two rows, and on top of the tables are closed body bags. All these students are in their 20s. They're smart and energetic. They're hyper-well-educated. And at the moment, they're psyched to finally take on the rite of passage. Though they're also maybe a little bit nervous. What do we do? Can we go? Can we go? Do we stay? That's Bianca Kapoor, a budding pediatrician from Chicago. Before coming to NYU, she studied bioengineering. Do you want to grab gloves? Yeah. 
And that's Alexa Stoyer. She wanted to be a doctor since she was a kid. She thinks she might eventually go into surgery. The pink one? And it's off to their assigned body on table four. Bianca and Alexa prop guidebooks and iPads on a metal stand attached to the table. But we're on page six. We start on page six, right? Okay. One of the anatomy professors makes a few announcements about keeping tools clean and disposing of waste. And that's pretty much it for instructions. Bianca and Alexa are joined by their third table mate, Oliver Stewart. They all have an outline of what to begin exploring. First the spine, then the chest, piece by piece. So the three of them get started. You want to look? Yeah. 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 And confusion. It's a woman. No, it's a guy. No, no, it's a woman. I think it's a woman, right? A couple key things here. Is it a guy? That's definitely a woman. No, it's a woman. Yeah. <laughs> to ease the first-year students gradually into anatomy, NYU and most schools don't just turn them loose on a body. They start with the trunk, the back, the chest, the torso, the abdomen. Not the head, not the arms and legs, not yet. Those parts are wrapped in cloth and mostly out of sight. And typically, the second-year students dissect them pretty thoroughly by the time the first-years arrive and start working on the trunk. The idea is that the second-years can emotionally handle these very personal, intimate human parts of the body better than these novices. Alexa isn't squeamish, but she's still glad she's starting with a body that someone else already worked on. I feel like when we get the new body and we are the second years having to do the first yeah. dissection, mm-hmm. that's going to be weird. I think that will be Because that is like an intact body and you are actually making like the first, yeah, the first cut. <laughs> Which is like a very unnatural thing. Yeah. Like as a human, you're not trained to <laughs> cut open a human be being. You really humans. should not be cutting open other human beings. So yeah. that, that's interesting. They take a deep breath. And dive in with probes and scissors and start figuring out how to cut muscle and tissue, how to match what they're finding to what they've seen in textbooks. Wait, so this tracks into where? And how different nerves or blood vessels are connected. So where's the carotid? Is that it? One of the chief instructors, Sally Frankel, comes by to see how they're doing with the spine. This was covering it. What do you suppose that is? That's dura. Alexa asks about epidurals the anesthesia injections that many women get during childbirth. They're like, if you would do this... Epi is above. Yeah. So epidural would be with the dura intact. You would go in between the vertebrae. You'd find a soft spot and release your uh, fluid, the anesthetic, above the dura. As you watch their faces, Alexa and Bianca and Oliver toggle between concentration and fascination and frustration. Wait, be careful. Each of them at times do this little weirded-out grimace with raised eyebrows, wide eyes, and a sort of suppressed smile. There's a lot of self-conscious laughter. Does it go, like, all the way up to the neck? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not just about getting these body parts down in a general way. Even on the first day, the final exam looms large. Table 4 is here to commit this stuff to memory, big time. Take the parts of the spine. Was this the one that was supposed to look like the moose? Yes, this one. So this one definitely looks like a moose. Okay. (laughs) What's going on here? Well, they're looking at a stretch of spine and different vertebrae in the spine. There's this mnemonic for remembering them. They look like different animals. Where do you see the giraffe? (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay, so here are the ears. I see. Yeah, and the horns and the head coming down. So little by little, they're piecing together a small section. So what amounts to a really complicated 3D puzzle. These ones have, like, holes in the side. Oh, yeah, The cervical ones, yeah. Is that a distinctive feature of the cervical? Yeah. By the end of the morning, Alexa and the others are exhilarated. It's, like, exactly the way that you need to learn. Because, like, reading about this stuff and memorizing this stuff and then seeing it and being like, this does this, is, like, I mean, everything makes so much sense. I feel like I could go take a test on this right now. And be They're like, out in the hallway now talking about how what they just went through compares with what they expected and what they braced themselves for. The smell gets you at some point. You're like, yeah, you're like, I just breathe that in. That's probably not the yeah. most healthy thing for my lungs. The formaldehyde is a little bit like ammonia or Lysol, maybe a little less intense. It doesn't have those really sharp edges clawing your throat and lungs. But the smell is just omnipresent. And then there's the cadaver. There's no getting around how surreal it is, even if you've been to open-casket funerals or seen six feet under. Remember, these bodies are embalmed. They're literally bloodless, or pretty close to it. And to the students, this transformation of the body puts the cadaver into a kind of weird limbo. It's something well more than a rubber model, clearly, but a little bit different than human. The skin was so thick. Yeah. Like it felt it's like thick and tough, like, and yeah, yeah. even like leathery, like here, like, like when you feel felt her like shoulder, oh my like God, my shoulder so skin doesn't feel that thick. Yeah, mm-hmm. it fe- yeah, it felt like almost like leather. And as busy as they've yeah, been memorizing things, it's amazing how easy it is to forget this body ever belonged to someone. It's hard to I think imagine sometimes that it was a a living, breathing person. It's just weird. I mean, it's very it's weird to have these like large skin flaps where it just like falls off, and there's like. Pieces missing, you know, you're just like, what am I, like, is this... That's Bianca wrestling with the weirdness and the disconnect of it all. This woman she's cutting up clearly had a life. Her clean lungs point to someone who didn't live in the city, and she has a small metal port inserted in her skin for chemotherapy for cancer. But that all recedes really quickly during dissection. So are the students noticing these little personal details as they do the dissection? Oh, they definitely are. This chemotherapy port, it's one of the first things they noticed. At first, they were thinking it was a pacemaker. They were really confused. It wasn't especially close to the heart. Someone comes around and tells them what it is, and they wonder briefly about this woman's cancer. But they've got a lot of work to do. They're busy digging in, and they've got to piece together all these veins and vessels and muscles and organs. And this is part of their education, part of what medical school is training them to do even if it's not exactly explicit in gross anatomy, is to take these emotional responses, to take these curiosities, and at least momentarily shelve them, put them aside, and focus on the task at hand. Yeah, I got to say, having been a patient, the idea of a bunch of first-year medical students really clinically just taking all my organs out and reassembling them kind of freaks me out. Yeah, a lot of people feel that way. And I wanted to know more about who actually would volunteer to do this. So in the second half of the show, we've got a response of sorts from the cadaver. Okay, then when we come back, the cadaver speaks. You're listening to Only Human. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
guys. Thanks for listening this week. As you've probably figured out, we also love listening to you. And we want to hear from you for a new episode we're working on. It's called Me and My Therapist, Stories from the Couch. We're looking for personal stories about patient-therapist relationships. They can be short and funny or long and tragic. Maybe you had a crush on your shrink. Or maybe they fell asleep during your session. Or maybe you ran into them at the spa while you were both half-dressed. Tell us your story. Email us at onlyhuman at wnyc.org or leave us a voicemail at 803-820-9692. This is Only Human. I'm Mary Harris. And today, Fred Mogul and I are looking at the medical school rite of passage known as gross anatomy – We met a bunch of first-year NYU medical students who were really excited to be cutting open a cadaver for the first time. But they seemed a little daunted by the idea that this body was actually a person not that long ago. I don't know if it's daunted exactly. I think there is a little struggle, a little tension as they alternate between forgetting and remembering that they're working on someone who once had a life. So we're going to leave the anatomy lab just for a little bit. That's right. Let's visit another kind of med school post-mortem for a second. Hello, it's me. Who's singing? We're listening to a duet between two second-year medical students performed at a memorial service honoring the body donors who became cadavers. Most medical schools hold ceremonies like this. Students organize and lead the whole thing at an auditorium at NYU. They're singing and reading and more singing. There's a voice I can hear that will lead me home. This is something the second-year students do. Ideas for kind of a closure after they've completed the second and final half of Gross Anatomy. So what was the ceremony like? It was really touching. It was nice to hear these future doctors thinking out loud about some of the deeper dimensions of what they're taking on. And not just anatomy, but medicine in general. Here's one student named Martha Harrison. I am humbled by those who give us their bodies after they are finished living them, trusting in us not only to treat their remains with the respect and deference they deserve, but also to learn all that we can from them and to apply that knowledge astutely and compassionately for many years to come. The family members of the cadavers are invited to come to this ceremony and address the students. This year there was just one relative who came. She slipped in and out and declined the offer to come on stage. It seems like these students are working pretty hard to make a connection with these bodies, but it doesn't seem easy. What about those first years you met in the lab? Well, I didn't expect the students in the middle of dissection to have these long philosophical reflections as if they were in the middle of a ceremony. But I did want to see if they'd been wondering any further who the donor was. And whether they were curious or not, I was, and I was pretty determined to find out about this donor and how they ended up in the anatomy lab. So I take a couple weeks off when I get back to the lab, and the students at Table 4 are now working on a much more substantial elderly man instead of the gaunt elderly woman they started on, the one with the chemotherapy catheter. It turns out that her intestines were so devastated by cancer, there wasn't much to dissect. And the students showed up one morning, and there was this new body waiting for them. They were all shocked and disappointed. They'd grown kind of attached to the woman. 
in their own anatomy student sort of way. Her vasculature was really good in her um, thorax and her heart was really beautiful and had everything you needed to know. Like, And now we can't even see anything in our new body. We, we don't even have a thorax. And so like, we can't refer back to that like first work that we did. And so that's, that's Samantha Ayub, one of the Table 4 students we haven't met yet. She and the group at this point can't look back to the upper chest. They've got to keep moving forward with a new body into the lower torso and reproductive system. By now, the mood in the lab is a little different, too. The first-year students seem to have a little thicker skin about anatomy. They're not squeamish about picking up a dismembered leg and bringing it from one table to another. Whose leg is this, though? I don't want to just... This is uh, table one. I find Oliver and Bianca and Alexa now cutting more decisively than when I first joined them. Yeah, because this, this is the SMV, which is coming here, going all the way, all the way up into the portal vein. This male body arrives on table four as the students are in the home stretch for anatomy. As Alexa later explained, this new body also had these quirks that made dissection tricky. His abdomen was like entirely like pushed up. So his liver was like really, really high and his stomach was really high. And so it made it really difficult to see all the different like structures that we were looking for. And so it's... They never found out much about this man on their table, but I did. And there's a good chance if he could have spoken, he would have told Alex and the others to be patient, to take their time in figuring out how the pieces fit together. Would you like tea? This is Michelle Piso Manukian, the wife of the late Haig Manukian, the man the students were working on. I visited her at her apartment in the East Village. He was very mathematical, and he was patient. Her husband was a world-renowned player of the oud a Middle Eastern instrument similar to a lute or a guitar. He could analyze these rhythms, and uh, people would call him up and say, you know, what is the cycle? What's the beat here? And he could hear that and break it down for people. Haig was an Armenian-American whose parents fled the Turkish genocide during World War I. He grew up in Virginia and moved to New York, where he was a fixture in the local Middle Eastern music scene, dating back to the 1960s, when the belly dancers on 8th Avenue dubbed him Haig the Handsome, and one friend called him the Jimi Hendrix of the Oud. always a teacher, and Michelle finds solace in the idea of him still being an educator, down there in the anatomy lab, teaching students who are smart and curious, and maybe even a little irreverent. They're probably making jokes, too, which he also would have appreciated. And uh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It should be all moods. I wouldn't want to think that folks were just somber, but they should be laughing as well and making mistakes. That's a good thing. Good mistakes. You know, you want that. She has this funny picture in her head of Haig sort of being conscious during dissection, asking students questions and guiding them. You're using this one. How interesting, you know. It's like taking an oud apart. His body would be taken apart and looked at. It was important to NYU I not tell the students anything about Haig while they were still in anatomy class. But when I told the group I'd be speaking with someone who knew their cadaver, they got excited. 
and had lots of questions they wanted me to ask. So, like, what motivated her? Was it prior to getting sick? Um, was it, like, was it she presented this option in the hospital? That's Alexa. Bianca was curious about how the family mourned. Because you don't have a body that you can bury, and it's like a year later that they get the ashes that they can then, you know, spread or do what they wish with it. Um, so, like, how did they... How do you process that? Because I think that's a huge part of healing when someone passes is, you know, putting their body somewhere. Donating Haig's body was Michelle's idea. He was in the late stages of a six-year struggle with prostate cancer. He'd grown fascinated with his medical treatment and with all the cancer research his doctors were doing at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital and with the drug trials that had kept him alive. But now death was coming, and what to do with his body was one of many things weighing on Michelle. She starts reading online about these green burials with shrouds made out of organic cotton. And then I can cover Hyg in that, and then we can, I'll get six people, and we'll carry him on this thing, and we'll go to this hill. I couldn't figure out where the hill was going to be in New York. Where am I going to go? And then it just hit her. Donate his body to a medical school. And then I got really elated. that, That pulled everything together for me. I got, I stopped crying and I, I, I felt integrated. I felt, like, complete in some way. I just felt this is a real, this is, this is the right decision. And aside from this idea of high advancing science and being a teacher, becoming part of other people's intelligence, Michelle says, she later came to see dissection as a kind of transition. When Haig died, she lay down next to him. She anointed him with oil as her Syrian grandmothers would have done. And then she handed him over to NYU. I didn't want him to die. And I thought, he'll be alive in some way. He won't go into the dark. He'll be in light. I didn't care if it was fluorescent light. I didn't care. I wanted other people's eyes on him. And I wanted their hands on him. I couldn't let go, and so I thought, well, yeah, let's do that. You know, it was selfish for me, in a way, because I just wanted to think of him on 34th Street. I didn't want to think of him. I don't know. Michelle hopes the students appreciate how sacred what they're doing is. You know that Yeats poem? An aged man is a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, until soul clap its hands and sings, and louder sings for every tatter in its mortal dress. They are confronting a soul in some way. I don't know what do they think that? This is tattered body, but this was once not. This, I don't know. Things like, I don't know. That's, how do you honor what you've been given? A couple days later, I meet up with the students. By this point, they finished anatomy, so I can tell them about Haig. 
Their faces light up when I describe his life, and their nerd brains kick in with lots of questions about his terminal cancer. Alexa says she's glad she didn't know any of this earlier. Because if you went into it knowing, for example, that this patient had prostate cancer, you have like preconceived notions about what is going to be there as opposed to letting it just sort of surface um, as it would like if we were doctors. Knowing up front takes away that mystery that's like very much part of just like thinking and, and logic and allows and would take away sort of like the logical reasoning behind it. Bianca, for her part, has mixed feelings. I'm kind of glad that anatomy was just focused on, it's the biology, it's, you know, you can get, I like that I get the rest later, but um, I don't think I would have been, like, ready for it. But she also has a little regret about rushing to get the body structures down without pausing to think about the man they were dissecting. I, like, almost feel bad that we didn't really, like, ask, and I think when we're in the weed of things, you just really, you don't think about it, um, because you're so focused on, like, this vein goes to what vein and where does it come from. The week I meet Michelle and tell the students about her and Haig, it turns out it's the same week she's holding a long-awaited memorial tribute to him. She's been wanting to do it forever. He died almost 18 months ago, and finally there's a big festival in town, so all his old musician buddies are around. Michelle invites the students and me to the service. Three of the six students from Table 4 can make it. While snow flurries outside, we squeeze into a sixth-floor dance studio packed with several dozen friends and loved ones. There's a whole program of prayer, music, dance, food, and lots of reminiscing. He could talk to you about string, string uh, gauge for four hours until you would tell him as politely as you could, you lost me about three hours ago. That's High's close friend, Ara Dinkjohn, a fellow Oud player. He was very passionate about all of that, and uh, I don't think we're ever going to see anybody like him again. During the ceremony, Michelle announces that there's a group of medical students here who have been part of High's life cycle, though, understandably, she doesn't mention anatomy or dissection. Well, so do the students ever get to meet Michelle? They do a little bit later. She greets them warmly, but with all the guests swirling around and with all her duties as hostess, there's not a lot of chance for them to get acquainted. Thanks for having us. Just be good students. Be good doctors. <laughs> be the best. We're very motivated now. The meeting's a little awkward, because if you think about it, their connection's a little macabre. But they all find it very life-affirming. And Samantha and the others say... You know, it's just a privilege to be there, to have played a small part in Haig's journey. And when she said, you know, his, uh, his life will live on in our intelligence or something like that, I mean, you know, I hope I do that justice and honor his life and be a good doctor, I hope. So how'd they leave it? As of a couple weeks ago, they were going to meet and have tea. How much did you tell Michelle about how the students treated the body? Well, I wasn't graphic, but I was pretty frank that the students really threw much of dissection kind of ignore the humanity of the body. And, you know, she was really gracious about this. She said, well, you don't want people to be so empathic that they can't get anything done. What'd you take away from all this? You know, I'm a little biased, but I think looking into the donor's stories could be enlightening, even if it's not on the final exam. The group seemed to benefit from learning about Haig and Michelle, you know, they spend all this time memorizing stuff. They spend a little time memorializing in a formal ceremony later on. But maybe just simply remembering, remembering that they're working on a person, someone who had a life 
once upon a time, while they're still in anatomy class, maybe that would be a little instructive. That was Fred Mogul, health reporter for WNYC and Only Human. So would you donate your body for science? Or do you know anyone who has? Tell us about it at onlyhuman.org or on our Facebook page. Only Human is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Amanda Aronchik, Elaine Chen, Paige Cowett, Julia Longoria, Kenny Malone, Ankita Rao, Ariana Tobin, and Jillian Weinberger. Our technical director is Michael Raphael. Our executive producer is Lital Malad. Special thanks to the students you heard in this story, and also Sophie Ruff, Michael Wen, as well as Mel Rosenfeld and DJ Haffeman from NYU. Thanks also to Megan Kunane and Eleni Murphy. Jim Schachter is the vice president for news at WNYC. I'm Mary Harris. Talk to you next week. Support for WNYC's health coverage and Only Human is provided by the Torina Endowment Fund, Jane and Gerald Catcher, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Simons Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and the Winston Foundation. <laughs>